You're listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. Welcome to another episode of the DIY Recording Guys podcast. I'm Vadim from Calm Frog Recording. And I'm Ben from DreamLod Studio. Ben, we just had a wonderful discussion with Brad McGowan of Louder Than Liftoff about the magical world of, of analog gear. Um, what'd you think? It was awesome. Um, very interesting to get to probe somebody's mind as far as seeing how they think about it, how they got into the world of, of do-it-yourself building analog pieces of gear and then turning it into a business was really cool. Um, mm. And just getting to kind of see how uh, somebody who, you know, is doing something at a high level of design, how their how their brain thinks about things. I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, it was. And and after we actually hit stopped recording, we talked for quite a bit more and and this was actually a question we had on our list and didn't didn't get to ask, but um Brad t- talked to us offline about the process of designing gear and and how you go about it and how it's really a baby step process where, you know, you don't start overnight uh developing a complex piece of gear. You start slowly and just like we talk about with recording, every time you finish a project, you finish a design, you finish a mix, anytime you finish something, you learn a lot. And um, yeah. you incorporate that knowledge going forward. And also, he said that he's blown up a lot of stuff, <laughs> which is super important too. Sometimes by doing things completely wrong or by breaking things, those are really like the learning moments, right? Like the same thing with mixing or recording. Like, Oh, you put a mic too close and your preamp level was too hot and you clipped it. Well, guess what? You probably will never make that mistake again. So you have to be willing yeah. to kind of make some of those uncomfortable mistakes and you become better for it. Mm-hmm. So we get we got into a lot of interesting topics. We talked about some classic circuits, which is one of the things that uh, Brad works on kind of emulating and improving upon. So we we all hear these classic things like Neve. API, SSL, these preamps and consoles. We we asked him about what is it about these things that people like? What makes them different? Why is one preamp different than another? We talk a little bit about the process of listening to these different things and kind of having that critical ear and deciding what makes them sound unique. We talked about uh, the design process, how these things come into creation from somebody's mind. What else did we hit on? Aerospace engineering. <laughs> I don't think we recorded that part. <laughs> oh, you're right. We did it. But we talked about it. Too bad you guys weren't there to hear it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We talk about, um, yeah, we talk a little bit about workflow. And for mm. those of us who are working completely in the box, how uh, you can start to incorporate, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. How you can start to incorporate some analog gear into your workflow. And Brad's comments were really around preamps there. And he really, he, he says what you hear a lot, which is focus on the source, right? Focus on yeah. what you're recording and, and your technique. We talked a little bit about 
um, like modern day circuits and a lot of this gear, Ben, you had this, one, this great question on a lot of this gear that's being emulated is this classic old gear. Uh, so we were asking Brad about circuits that were being designed today. How would they be different? Mm -hmm. We also talked and about more. how, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We also talked a lot about, um, you know, developing your ear and how to hear these micro changes which mm -hmm. are the difference in a lot of these preamps and circuitry. It's, you know, what, what did he talk about? The difference between 0.01 and 1% distortion added. Like that's a very, that's such a small change that mm. you're not going to hear that the first time you AB it. It's going to take a lot of experimenting and, and using a circuit on a bunch of different songs before you really learn how it works. And, and I, I think it was refreshing too and encouraging to hear Brad talk about his learning process for, you know, mm -hmm. how he wasn't always an expert and he really got good at this stuff just from doing it over and over and not giving up, which I thought was a really, a really cool thing that he hit on multiple times in the episode and is definitely a, a, a note of encouragement that I will take forward <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Check the show notes for where you can find Louder Than Liftoff and the work they're doing, and also where yeah. you can find us, the DIY Recording Guys. And we hope you enjoy the episode. All right, Brad. Well, we're back. We've had some one of our textbook trademark technical issues, but we're gonna we're gonna try it again here. Yeah. So we're very excited to talk to you today about all of the magical things that Louder Than Liftoff is doing for the recording world. But before we do that, take us back to your history with music and recording technology and how you ended up designing and manufacturing gear of all things. So I think it all started when I was 18. I got my first guitar from my parents as a graduation gift. Um, and uh, very quickly I realized that, um, or I was very curious why I had to pay somebody to bias my, my vintage Fender tube amp and why this wasn't something I could do myself because I was a poor college student. Um, mm -hmm. And so that began my curiosity. By the way, I read an interview into, where you, know, you said you, were, you, you described it as uh, sticking your fingers into your guitar amp. I think that was in uh, some interview I read about you. So yeah, uh, it sounded pretty uh, pretty cowboy like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did get shocked at quite a number of times. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it all started with the guitar amps, and uh, you know that you know the the biasing amps quickly became modifying amps and then building guitar amps, um, building guitar amps for other people. Um, and then, and then I, um, made friends with somebody that was into the whole DIY, uh, scene through group, the, the group DIY forums. And he had built like some 1176 clones and an LA-2A and that kind of was eye opening to me. Um, and then I started making, you know, Back right now, you can buy like a kit, right? Like you can go to Hairball Audio and buy an 1176 kit. Mm -hmm. But back then, it was like there's one guy making a board, and then there's some guy in Croatia <laughs> making a case. <laughs> and if you send him like like a hundred dollars under the tray of a CD, so the customs <laughs> don't steal the money, like then he'll send <laughs> you wow, a case magically amazing. like two months later. No, seriously, I, this happened. <laughs> and um, 
he probably is still selling gear through that forum, but now, you know, with PayPal. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I started building some kits and then, uh, you know, just learning, trying to like wrap my head around like what do capacitors do? Like what's this preamp circuit? What's this power supply circuit? Um, you know, I, I think I was, I was trying to, I have a background in mechanical engineering and some of my early work in the aerospace industry was as a systems engineer. So I kind of had this like, um, top down kind of approach to design, like, Mm. Let's take the fender amp and like, okay, this part of it is, is a preamp and this part is a power supply. Um, this part is a phase inverter. And then it's like you start to delve into the details of what does that circuit block do. Um, so as I was becoming smarter and learning about, you know, electronic basics through the guitar amps and the DIY stuff, um, at some point I felt confident enough to design something uh, and it was, it was like really crappy mixer circuit that I was <laughs> trying to design. And around that same time I met Greg from Kush audio, uh, on the, um, gear sluts forum, which is now called gear space. Um, and Greg and I hit it off and we had a very similar philosophy towards making music. And he had just started Kush audio and was doing his UBK mm-hmm. fatso mods and, um, I somehow convinced him that I knew how to design some gear and he's like, Hey, we should make something together. And so that, that first product that we did was the main gain and function junction monitor controller. Um, and then soon after that, we did the Electra 500 series EQ and, um, that was a pretty good success. And so I immediately started work on a companion EQ to the Electra, which ultimately became the chop shop. And, um, I tried, you know, I pitched it to Greg and he was interested in putting out some other things at the time. So he encouraged me to just release it on my own. And, um, around that same time in the background, I had begun development on the silver bullet design with my good friend, Bill Pearson, who you may know as Dr. Bill on some of the forums. And, um, so I thought, well, I'll just launch this brand louder than liftoff with the chop shop and kind of get things going. And then that'll give us, um, you know, this company with which to make this silver bullet product. So we announced the silver bullet in at the AES in 2014 and then, um, started taking orders basically the end of 2015. And then finally, um, you know, started shipping the first silver bullets in December of 2015. And then, uh, the rest is history. That's awesome. Cool. <laughs> so, yeah, we um, before we dive into actually the silver bullet is one that's that's interesting to talk about because I was thinking about like an analogy because we we love analogies on the podcast and I was thinking it would be like if you're listening at home and you're wondering like how I would classify what louder than liftoff is doing pretend you've never had coffee in your life and then your friend takes you to a coffee shop like a really nice one and you have coffee and you're like hey this is awesome coffee is amazing. How can I have this every day? And your friend said, well, you could like buy a coffee shop. And you were like, well, I can't afford a coffee shop and I don't (laughs) need a coffee shop. And then you did some digging and found out like, hey, if I get some beans and like a grinder and some hot water, then like I can have coffee at home. To me, like what you guys are doing is you've asked the question of like, okay, what is it about some of these pieces of gear that's really important? That's really imparting the, the sonic characteristics that are so sought after 
And how can we just replicate that part of it? Maybe for people who don't need 24 faders and a huge power supply of things. So, <laughs> so I, this is, it's, it's a really fascinating concept for people who are maybe a little bit uninitiated. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about some of these tonal things that we are searching for? And, and, um, the question, uh, that comes to mind is like, when we say something like the Neve sound, I imagine there was a time for you when, when that didn't mean anything, you weren't sure what that meant. So talk about your journey of discovering these sonic characteristics, and then also curious, like what's actually causing them and, and what we're talking about. Yeah. So, so for me, my first real preamp was actually a, a Neve. It was a, a Vintec 1272. And at the time I had been using a, a Mackie 1402 mixer for all my preamps. And, um, I remember the first time I heard that Vintec, I was so excited to get it and I plugged it in. I plugged my hmm. TLM 103. It was my best microphone at the time. I plugged it into that thing and we recorded some vocal tracks with an, an artist I was working on, working with. And I was so underwhelmed actually, because my <laughs> ears just weren't at a point where they knew what to listen for. Mm. Like I had never heard some, a piece of gear of that caliber. And so I just hadn't developed the critical listening skills to, to pick up on those subtle subtleties and nuances. And so it actually was, you know, it took some time to just become more intimately familiar with that piece to really appreciate what it was bringing to the table and understand how it was different than the, the Mackie. And one of the things Mm -hmm. that I think made it different was just its subtle distortions that it added. And, you know, um, I think there's two types of distortions and ultimately, you know, kind of to the point of your question, what is the thing that we're hearing that we like, you know, you know, like it's, when we talk about saturation, I think it's ultimately distortion. And so there's good distortion and there's bad distortion. And, um, I think for me, uh, I've just had this quest of how do you, how do you create good distortion? Like what is the good distortion and how do I get that? Yeah. And I remember, so I had this, uh, internship at this major recording studio in San Francisco when I had first moved out to the Bay area and they had a big vintage Neve console. Um, and they were recording the tape and they also had a a vintage Trident console. And here I am at home recording on to Cubase through a, through a Motu 2408 and my Mackie mixer. And I just remember sitting at the studio and they would like pull up the faders. Like they had just like, you know, just done like the raw tracks and pull mm-hmm. up all the faders. And it just sounded like, like my head yeah. was just like, like, how can this sound so good? This guy didn't even do anything. Like, like yeah. here I am at home. I'm like trying to add plugins and like, I'm, you know, reading all these articles and like EQ and recording magazine on like how to make your track sound like the pros. And also I was kind of like lamenting the fact that why does my, why do my digital recordings not sound as good as the old cassette four track recordings I used to make, you know, like how did I kind of go backwards in terms of like the, the tonality or, or the, just like the mojo my recordings had. And it was, I came to find out ultimately I, I just wasn't getting the, the distortion, like the guy with the big Neve console and the tape decks, he was getting all the, the magic distortion for free without even trying. And I just thought this was so unfair. I have to figure out 
how to add the right stuff just because I can't afford like a million dollar studio. And I was like, I don't want to have to figure that out, you know? And so ultimately as I, you know, became interested in electronics and developed the brand, um, it just became something that I just kept, you know, kept poking at and diving into and like, how can I, how can I create gear that, that gives people the magic without them having to be an expert in circuits or, you know, or needing like a million dollar studio. I, I've read some stuff you've you've written as well where you talk about that, you know, it's you're trying to make gear that's musical and easy to use in a in a creative sense where like I think one thing I read you were saying like I don't want to move the mic. I want to turn this knob and have like a really quick like tilt tilt uh, dark and lighten effect, which um totally makes sense, especially for like small studios, right? Yeah, it's funny because like, yeah, when I was developing the chop shop, I had, I'm not going to name any names, but somebody that has like some decent credits to his name and, you know, he knows what's up (laughs) in terms of music production. And he, he, uh, was auditioning the prototype chop shop and he was just like, I don't really get it. Like, why wouldn't I just go move the mic? (laughs) I was just like, yeah, but it's this thing. Like when I'm like working fast and like, I don't like sometimes I can't go into the room and I just want to turn the knob. And he's like, yeah, but why wouldn't you move the mic? And I was like, well, I don't want to move the mic. (laughs) And it was just like, at that moment, I just realized we don't all work the same and that's, that's okay. (laughs) So, so Brad, you mentioned, um, you know, these, these harmonic distortions and these are some of the things that we find pleasing. And obviously these different circuits, these different, let's say famous preamps and knee versus an API, they're adding, different levels and different uh types of harmonic distortions which is what gives them their different sound i was always curious about this like under the hood though because i I do i'm also a mechanical engineer so i'm completely an idiot when it comes to electronics but i remember the one class where you know we had a little triangle of like what an amplifier looks like and all that what is what is different between like the way neve or or just um you know approached this this preamplifier versus the way other companies approach them why are they providing different levels of saturation like i would think a preamp was a preamp i think well if you know you break down like these classic circuits to like if we oversimplify it a lot of it just there's amplifier stages and then there's well let's back up i like to talk about the things like the four t's of tone mm. which are tubes tape transistors and transforms i love it like those are the things that are going to give you like the most mojo in an analog circuit um and so with you know when you talk about api and neve you basically have different combinations of transistors and transformers so in an in in a neve circuit you you have discrete transistor circuitry um that has transformers on the front and back end. And then in an API, you have, um, you also have discrete transistor circuitry, but we're talking about, you know, we, instead we have a discrete op amp that runs off of a bipolar supply and that's, you know, API has the 2520. And then again, you have transformers on the front Mm. and back end of these circuits. And so I'm like oversimplifying. And so I think what largely gives these, 
circuits, their different personalities. And this is my, my opinion. I think a lot of it is primarily the, the transformers. Hmm. And so the makeup of the transformer, you know, how much steel is there to nickel and the laminations, you know, how are they wound? Um, that all produces, um, a certain saturation characteristic, you know, some transformers like, are, like Jensen's can be really clean, take a lot of level. And then other things like maybe say a vintage marinara might, um, distort in a more, um, obvious, but musical way. Mm. Um, and so I think, um, you know, if you've ever taken like a Neve or an API preamp or any preamp that has like a separate gain and output control, you know, you can like dial back the output and then like crank the gain. And what you're effectively doing is you're just like pushing a lot more level into a transformer. Is it, are these circuits when they were originally designed or like even when you're working on stuff, how much are you doing? How much of it is theoretical versus like you're tuning it by ear, you know, you're you build something, you listen to it, and then you make a different decision based on on what you're hearing. Like guess and check versus like I run a simulation and I can tell you what's going to happen. So when I design circuits, I tend to use both simulation and just real world listening tests as well as, um, you know, like more analytical measurements of what's going on. Like, you know, obviously if I'm trying to like reduce the noise in a circuit, uh, get out the scope and, mm. you know, I put my scientist mm -hmm. hat on. Um, but if I'm trying to like, um, fine tune a circuit for a certain like audio, um, like a, like a tonal signature, um, that's something I'm going to do through listening. And I think just over time you develop kind of a, um, just an understanding of what not like, not literal knobs, but what figurative knobs you can turn to get, get certain effects. Like for me, I have in my brain, I know if I use this capacitor versus this capacitor, it's going to change the sound in this way. Hmm. Um, a lot of it does happen to be, for me at least happens to be, um, trial and error, but it's not like totally a blind process. It's, it's kind of informed by the other things I've developed before. Mm -hmm. Um, so like if I'm developing an EQ circuit, so like when I did the Electra EQ with Kush Audio, I actually, I actually designed the whole circuit, uh, like, like in spice <laughs> and before we even built it, um, just to work out like what all the EQ curves were going to be and stuff. And then we made the first prototype and we we're like, this just sounds amazing. And I think we tweaked, we tweaked like the corner frequency of like, or like the lower range of the high shelf. And we tweak, we tweak the, there's like, um, a low, like a fixed frequency, low shelf. And that was it. And that thing was done. Mm. Um, mm. yeah. So I'll like, if I'm doing something like an EQ where I need to see frequency response, I'll rely on, on simulation to, you know, figure out frequencies and stuff like that. Like, like let's say the Hitmaker 4000 color module, it's got an 8k boost on it. You know, I decided I want it to have, I decided, oh, I think I'm going to make a 3 dB boost or 4 dB boost at 8K. I worked that out in Spice, you know, built the prototype. And then I was like, ah, 4, 4 dB is too much. I really want 
2.3 or whatever it worked out to yeah. be, you know? And, and, and I, that final tweaking was done mm. by ear where I was mm. listening on a bunch of sources and using it like in a real world kind of scenario to figure out like, you know, when I set the knob like this, does this feel too much on this type of source? Does it feel too much? Um, but over time, I think with experience, you kind of develop um, an ability to like start in the right ballpark. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, yeah, like with the Hitmaker 4000, which was the last uh, color module I developed, I designed it all. I built it. I built a prototype. I'm not one of the, like, I've stopped building stuff on breadboards with wires hanging off, you know, like these crazy prototypes on I generally just go straight to designing the circuit board mm. and then try and, you know, measure 50,000 times and only cut once and then, mm. you know, dot all my I's and cross all my T's and then, um, get a circuit board fully populated with the production parts I want, I expect to use. And then I'll make like, say five or 10 of them. And then I'll buy a bunch of parts of things that I think I might want to tweak or, or experiment mm-hmm. with. And like, maybe I'll, you know, let's, let's see if I change this capacitor type, or maybe let's change, uh, this brand of op amp. Um, and I'll just start listening. And then as I'm using it on stuff and just kind of playing with the circuit, um, you know, you start to go like this, this, starts to break up too soon when I have the drive set here. Like maybe I need to adjust something. I need to turn down the gain of the circuit and then, you know, you'll swap out a resistor or two and then you'll be like, Oh wait, that kind of changed the way that this other thing sounds. Um, (laughs) so it's kind of an iterative process where it's like what you're hearing is informing the changes you're making. And then maybe the changes you make inspire you to go down a different path. Like, um, like on the Hitmaker, I added a jumper to switch between, uh, I think it's called fat and rich on the, so I labeled that jumper THD, mm-hmm. I believe. And that was something that I, I didn't initially plan to do, but it was just kind of like, I realized through making other changes that I was affecting kind of the yeah. distortion, the harmonic distortion of the, of the design. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I offered these two different settings? Yeah. It it's a lot like anything else. It's a lot like building a guitar tone in a sense where when you've done it enough and you know you have your amp controls and you have your certain pedals and you have your neck pickup versus your bridge pickup, if you've done it enough, you kind of know where to go based on what you're hearing. So it sounds like you've achieved that level of proficiency with the circuit designs, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, like if you're a guitar player and someone says Oh, I want to, I'm going for this smashing pumpkins kind of guitar tone. You're not like, let me break out the tube screamer, right? <laughs> right. It's just the wrong tool for the job. You're, you, you know, instead you're like, I need the big right. muff. Yeah. So I think for me, like, yeah, I just have like, um, this mental repertoire of, you know, what components give me the flavors I need or, or what what tweaks I can make to circuits, um, to have a certain effect. And what I've, what I've learned just through experience and all this experimentation is sometimes you can, you can get the sound, you can achieve the sound you're going for by tweaking things that aren't necessarily intuitive. 
like maybe changing the way the power supply performs, mm. you know, you know, like, like, let's say I'm like, oh, I want a more pillowy bottom end. You could possibly change the transformer or maybe you change like the bypass capacitor in the power supply. There's different um, levers you can pull. Yeah, there's different levers. And like, I'm not so, I think my circuits tend to be um, inspired by vintage circuits. And there's like a nod to some of those sounds, but I'm not hell bent on being like uh, super faithful to what those vintage circuits were. Like I'm, I'm totally fine with just like turning the wrong knob, <laughs> you know? Ben had a really interesting question, which, uh, uh, along with the lines of what you said, but while, while we're waiting for him, do you have any advice for, for people who are maybe working completely in the box right now? Maybe you could talk about your workflow a little bit, but they're interested in like trying to, trying some analog gear, maybe some analog workflow. What do you recommend for them as, um, as a starting point? And then we'll, we'll let Ben ask his, uh, his question. If I could stay connected, yeah, if you we'll could see. Stay connected. I don't know what the heck is going on. <laughs> yeah. What I, I think what I would recommend for everyone is, is, um, a, a really, a really nice preamp would probably be the first thing. Like assuming that you have really good mics, if I could do it all over again and like redo my studio from, from like go back in time and like build my studio all over again, I think I would have invested all my money into really great monitors, really good room treatment. So get the acoustics in both my, my mixing space and my recording space. Right. Mm. And then just invest in really good mics and then, you know, some decent preamps. And that's like, that's like most of the mm. battle right there. Mm. Um, you know, I think this obsession, one trend that I've noticed is, uh, people with their, we're getting to this place with their plug-in chains where they were just like ridiculous, where <laughs> people have like 10 plugins on a track and, and then they would put like 10 plugins on their mix bus. And like, there's probably YouTube videos where people talk about, you know, like this is my mix bus yeah. chain and pro tools. <laughs> like, yeah. and, and that, and I started to see within the last few years, people like having that same mentality and applying it to the analog domain. So it wasn't, so like the silver bullet came out and then we started to see like, Oh, I got the silver bullet and I'm getting this mix bus compressor and I need this. And then I need this, you know, Rupert need master bus processor. And then I'm going to get this EQ. And they're just like, I don't know. They're doing the same nonsense, but just with analog gear for me, I'm like, if I start turning red kind of guy, it's and because I, think, I feel like I'm, I'm at that point right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I and I, I mean, I've been there myself, right? Like it's easy to say the reason I'm not getting this good sound is because I don't have enough of the right gear, mm. but ultimately that's usually not, that's usually not the case for most of us. It really is. It's more probably our room sucks mm. and we, it's difficult to capture a good sound or the source or actually the source sucks or my ears aren't good enough and I just don't know how to use the gear I have to get the right sounds out of it. So my advice to people would be to get a real, get some nice mics, get a nice preamp and then just practice capturing the best sound you can. 
Um, and don't be afraid to like, I, I EQ stuff and compress stuff on the way in. And that was eye opening to me when I, you know, when I first started working with people that were at a professional level is that some of them would commit to sounds. And I, I would say, don't be afraid to, you know, put the sound you like to tape or, you know, into pro tools. Um, obviously you can't undo it, but that's how you learn, right? If you mess it yeah. up, then you're either going to have to redo it or you'll learn when you go to mix, like, Oh, that doesn't, you know, I can't record something that bright or that bassy. That's just going to be a mess later or, or I over compressed it. I like to record drum, well, most things to tape, but you know, when I'm doing digital, I'll use an Animod ATS one tape emulator, um, on basically every overdub track to just make it feel like there's that yeah. tape saturation. Um, but yeah, just, uh, just learn to use your tools and get the best results. Awesome. Um, great advice. I think is, is really the best thing that you can do and don't, don't rely on a bunch of plugins to, to basically, um, compensate for your, your inexperience. Right. That's so refreshing to hear. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we preach the same thing all the time. Yeah. But I, I come more from the digital recording, uh, world and, um, this analog stuff is very new to me. In fact, uh, a lot of the analog pieces I'm starting to get interested in now, uh, my re my gut reaction is, oh, I know uh, that analog piece of gear. I know what plugin that's emulating, which is the <laughs> exact opposite of what in reality what's happening. But yeah. um, one thing that I've noticed is that uh, not just louder than liftoff, but a lot of the analog gear manufacturers, they're making units that add this analog color that are clones of very old pieces of vintage gear. Like we hear the same names over and over again, API neve ssl so i'm curious uh is there a market for like a revolutionary new analog piece of gear that has circuitry that's not a neve that's not an ssl and is it more a challenge just to get interest from the public uh into something that's that brand new because there is this kind of worship of the the vintage kings of of gear and for me coming from just a, yeah. a digital space like i don't really I didn't care at all what a Neve or an SSL was when I started recording. I just want to get a sound. I want to get something that sounds cool. So thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's always been a, a challenge. Um, um, I think the the whole plug-in, you know, with the DSP modeling being kind of the the default for a lot of plugins these days, um, you know, or analog model modeling of like the vintage hardware. Um, being very popular there's that name recognition yeah. like i want mm. i want the the neve the api the 1176 the la2a the poltec and so um yeah how do you as a audio manufacturer make something that's unique and how do you get attention yeah. on that um there can be a bit of a um like a learning uh, or an educational process if you develop something new that people have never seen before. And then, you know, if you just from a business perspective are trying to like commercialize this thing you've created, how do you get traction when you have to educate yeah. people? And they already like when they see something that looks like a Poltec, they go, 
oh yeah, Poltec, yeah. I know that. Like there's no, there's no learning, there's no education required for a Poltec. I mean, right. maybe in terms of like how to get, you know, the best, that, like the most out of using it, but not in terms of like what it is and what it's going to bring. But, to but the even table. like from a, from a technical um, standpoint, like the, you know, the SSL uh, console that Hitmaker 4000 is, is emulating was, I think that the technology was developed in the eighties or, or something like that. Right. So yeah. just, just technical progression of components and circuits, like, is there like a modern vert? Like if we were to push the technology, like forget about the, yeah, the education and the marketing portion of it. But if we were designing an analog console or preamp from scratch today using modern uh, components, would it look different? Like, could we, would it go somewhere else and would it sound different than, you know, SSL Neve API? Well, I think SSL is doing that in mm. a way. I mean, their, their modern mm. designs are, an evolution of okay. their heritage and they they would tell you that what they currently make their newest stuff is the best the best mm -hmm. stuff they've ever made i mean i know if i made a console i mean i would use i would use a bunch of modern yeah. it'd probably be a very very mm -hmm. clean sounding console with modular mm -hmm. mojo love it yeah um, is is what i would do um i've toyed with the idea of making a console but <laughs> it's it's just not, you know, it's a big commercial endeavor. Um, and uh, the reality is, is like, you know, guys like us who have a smaller private setup, we're not going to go, we're just not going to stick a $50,000 console no. in our <laughs> house. I mean, I would love to, but it's just not like not in my, <laughs> not in my right. budget. I mean, there's, there's people I think out there doing, doing it, but it's just such a niche segment mm -hmm. of the market. So I think you, you kind of talked about your workflow a little bit. It sounds like you're on the on the side of committing. You like to print through uh, compression and EQ. And um, is there, I, I love what you said, by the way, which is like by making those mistakes, it's actually, it sucks, but it's the best way to learn your gear because when you're listening back and you're hearing something you don't like, you can figure out what it is you don't like. You've now kind of, done the work of characterizing that gear and it's a scary thing to do because you know you don't want to like ruin a take but it really is the best really is the best way to uh to learn it uh, yeah oh yeah i was i went through this phase where i was like recording drums with two mics like a stereo overhead and a kick mic mm. and like i think i printed a bunch of eq no I did something terrible <laughs> to one of those mics and it's just like such a chore to undo it. But it's like, yeah, it's always in the back of my mind. Like I will never <laughs> you know, do that thing that I did again when recording drums with two mics. Yeah. So, I, I mean, you know, I, I think people just need to um, trust their gut instincts Yeah. and maybe and, and like, like develop some gut instincts. I mean, that's like, part of the whole process if you don't if you don't take some risks and um you're just not going to develop your ears it's, it's very satisfying to like pull up faders and have it sound like a mix and not be like oh come back in two hours while i go put on fifty thousand plugins <laughs> and download somebody's template file or something <laughs> like yeah. you know let me load up my presets and template i i don't know i that's just not me maybe i'm 
I'm old school. No, I think there's, there's maybe a little bit, but that's cool though. Like for me, compression was something that was notoriously difficult to learn to hear. And for some reason, having in like an analog thing that I could turn a knob on, I could, I started to, to really hear it in a different way. Um, but I do want to encourage people, like if you're listening to this and, and you struggle with some of this, I can tell you like right now I have, <laughs> I've gotten a little overboard with these color modules. I've talked about my, my new color duo. And there's a point where there, there's some modules on there where I engage them. And all I can tell you is that it sounds different, but I can't really put into words right away what was different about it. And it really was, it is still a process of like trying it, pushing it, overdoing it to where I can start to recognize, oh, okay, that's what this is doing. And then I'm finding like later in situations, where I'm like, oh, you know what this needs? It needs to be thickened up and this is just mm-hmm. the thing to do it. So it definitely takes yeah. time. And um, a lot of this stuff, I, I feel like to really, I, I know even, even working in the box, I was always afraid to, to push things because it seemed wrong to push things. But pushing things like pushing gay knobs, whether it's plugins or analog gear, I think is really the best way to like characterize what, you're, what it does. What does this knob do? Push it hard <laughs> and, uh, and yeah. you'll, it'll be easier to, uh, to tell those differences and then you'll be able to see this, the, when it's a subtle nuance, you'll be able to, to recognize the, uh, the tonal change as well. I used to have I, something I used to do often was um, kind of have like a play day in the mm. studio where me and my buddy would just go and set up mics on a guitar cab or his drum set and just like try out that's cool new miking techniques or try out a new compressor or EQ and just just see like what what sounds we could get you know like how could we you know maybe it'd be something we write about online we were curious about trying. You know, like, oh, let's try this crotch mic or, um, or you know, let's mic the snare this weird way with this really crappy <laughs> microphone. And I think, I think um, yeah, allowing yourself, you know, space to experiment mm-hmm. and really helps you build up those skills that you were yeah, mentioning. Absolutely. Yeah, feel free to tell us more about the Silver Bullet, any of the other stuff you're working on. And I think you guys have something new in the works, which... I'm nervous about because I've, <laughs> I've I've gone through a gear acquisition phase, which I tend to do from time to time. Um, what do you got yeah. in that rack that you can sell? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what Not that he needs at all. <laughs> yeah. What do you what do you what do you got over there? What do I got? I got a a Bax. I got a dangerous Bax. I got my SSL bus compressor clone and a Fatso. Nice. Yes. And I won't tell you which ones to sell just yet. <laughs> Will you tell me offline? <laughs> I'll tell you uh, after we make our announcement. Okay. okay. Oh, okay. But yeah, we are working on something new, um, which we're hoping to announce in coming weeks. So I oh, would wow. say uh, if anyone wants to find out what we're doing, get on our email list. Just go yes. to our website and sign up for the, the mailing list or, or watch our Instagram and Facebook accounts. That was going to be my next question is where, where can people keep up with what you guys are doing and, and see your, uh, your existing work? I would say our Instagram. Okay. Just at louder than liftoff on Instagram. Um, it's probably the thing that gets the most attention, although I've been terrible about it in the last year. Um, Okay. But yeah, we're we're hoping to 
pick things up and have some exciting new stuff coming out real cool. soon. Can you give us a hint or no? But yeah, what, <laughs> what's, what's that? Can you give us a hint of what uh, what realm uh, we're we're dealing with? Feel free to say no. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I'll give you a couple hints because I did post some teaser pics on Instagram okay. uh, the past couple weeks. So I can tell everybody that it is um, a rack mount box. It's got more circuitry in it than we've ever put in anything. Ooh. And <laughs> it's got a really awesome looking meter on it. Okay. <laughs> and lots of nice metal knobs. Just take my money, okay. Brad. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> I I think it's gonna be um I think it's gonna be good. I think people will be pretty stoked once they see what it is. Awesome. Science and experimentation are very near and dear to our hearts. So yeah, it's very yeah. Cool you just to have to balance the two. I think. I think it's about yeah. having a a healthy balance and and um, allowing for some some experiment experimentation and playfulness, and then and then obviously like sometimes you got to break out the oscilloscope. <laughs> right. <laughs> but not all the time. Right. And sometimes yes. you can just be like, "What happens if I stick a screwdriver here?" Yep. Yeah, totally. But not into your into your amp. Don't stick a screwdriver into, into your, your amp. Tube amp. That's that's a bad idea. <laughs> I got a good anecdote about a happy accident. Actually, okay. so when we were de- when we were developing the Silver Bullet, we were auditioning lots of transformers for the A and the N Mojo amps, and we had this favorite for the A Mojo amp that we really liked, and it was like ticking all our boxes. And then we got these transformers that we thought we would just try. And Bill was making some sound clips for me, for me, like he was, yeah, he was running all our audio test tracks through it and making sound clips. And then I would, you know, he'd send them over and I'd listen to them. And he was like, yeah, try that transformer. He's like, but I think it's broken. He's like, I don't know what's up with that thing. It just sounds really weird. And like, like, it's like a stereo widening effect. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) And I listened to it and I was like, Oh my God, this is magic. <laughs> I was like, he's like, yeah, but it kind of sounds like super wide. I'm like, you know, people will pay money for that. <laughs> so we, we were like, all right, this is the one. And then that we just, you know, changed that's it. That's very cool. Yeah, that's very cool. cool. And that's the, that's the transformer we've been using ever since in the, in the silver bullet and chroma. Cool. I, I do want to ask you, I guess, um, in terms of like the silver bullet and the the ANN circuits versus like a color module, if, if people are thinking like, okay, I want to get some some new flavor, is there a difference between between those, or, or are they similar tonally, design wise? What do you have to say for that? Um, the so the A and the N Mojo amps are completely unique circuits from what okay. we do with the color modules. So, hmm. um. The color modules are like the mass driver, which is an API flavored color module, is essentially like an API 325 line amp card. Um, we developed for both mass driver and Royal Blue, Royal Blue being the Neve inspired line amp. Um, we developed, you know, new transformers specifically for those circuits. Um, the 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 Royal Blue is based on more of like a, a 1081 kind of circuit mm. as opposed to like the class a 1080 1073 circuits okay um 
they're they're all like mass driver and the a mojo amp from chroma and silver bullet are like in the same camp okay. whereas royal blue and the n mojo amp are in the same camp but they're okay. they're different but mm-hmm. like you know to my mom they all sound the same so <laughs> right <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah. like, if we're really being honest, like all this stuff kind of sounds the same, right? But right, but, right. But then we get out our microscopes, and you know, we obsess about these minute, subtle details about, oh, how does the bottom end on my kick drum sound when I run it through, you know, this Neve style circuit versus that one? So it just depends how much you care. If you don't really care, just, right. you know, right. spend, spend decent money on a nice, you know, a nice product from a reputable brand and get on with making music and don't worry. Exactly. About it. Love yeah. it. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> that's a nice punchline here. Well, Brad, you have anything else you wanted to touch on today? Um, not really nothing that I can think of unless you guys have questions. I will say I still don't get mix bus compressors. Like I can't figure them out. Okay. So people ask them. me, will you ever make a mix bus compressor? I don't know, because I don't use them. So, so you so don't unless, use any any compression on your mix bus, on your tube no, bus? No, I don't. But wow. you know what I do use is a Studer tape deck. Mm. Okay. So I mix. Interesting. I like to mix into a Studer two-track deck. So you could say that's my compressor. Hmm. It's doing something like that. Well, yeah. that's a, that's the question for you. So, so why why do you mix into that tape? What are you getting from that tape deck that that you like? It gives me the it gives me the 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 glue. It gives me the mm. that maybe it's just when I started really listening to music. It was in an age when all records were made on tape, and so mm-hmm. for me it's maybe there's a nostalgic component to it, you know, like the sound of a record to me is, is probably somebody recording through a Neve console mixing through an SSL, like with Studer tape decks, you know, like I grew up in the nineties. So that's just the sound of rock and roll to me. Whereas, yeah, something made on a DAW with no tape, sound sounds wrong like i don't know mm. a snare drum like an sm57 plugged straight into like an a to d converter sounds so wrong to me like i can't <laughs> i can't do it like it has to hit tape even if it's like a tape emulation like i need at I least i do agree with you there like please at least get the uad studer plug-in you know and use that <laughs> on your drum tracks like um but I don't know. I think I think generationally people have become accustomed to digital recordings mm. and to them, to maybe younger folks making music and listening to music, maybe older records sound wrong and newer records sound correct ah. because that's just what their ear has become attuned to. So. Interesting. We'll probably find out. I think that generation is still growing up. We're in like that transition generation right now, but yeah, interesting. Well, you know but what I mean? I, even like, even like, um, you know, younger Gen Z, um, you know, anybody who was born like the two thousands, probably all the music they heard as was recorded to Pro Tools, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. But there's true. also, I feel like I don't know if this is just me being 
the old man shaking fist at the sky. <laughs> but just the <laughs> the other day, I pulled out. I have like an I have a like an expansive CD collection. Also grew up in the '90s, and I've never really listened to some of those old CDs like in my studio on my monitors. And so I was doing that the other day. I was just pulling out these old CDs and listening to them. And one thing that struck me was that they all sound, not they all, but a lot of them sound different, but they all sound good. I don't know if there, there's mm -hmm. like been almost like a homogenization where like now if you're recording like a prog metal song, like there's a prog metal sound. There's like a target, I feel like. It might be the internet. It, it yeah. might be the fact of the <laughs> internet and right social media that. because, you know, it's good that we can we can talk and, and uh, connect across the world with like-minded people. But I think that's in a way that on one hand it could homogenize things because like now you're, you, you go down the rabbit hole of how to make a country record right on YouTube. Right. Right. Like what, what amps and gear and, you know, guitar pedals and instruments mm. do I need to make the, you know, the hit, radio friendly country record. Like, let me watch all those YouTube videos. Whereas maybe like when I was growing up, I was just, I got a cassette four track and I bought an SM57 and I'm going to hang it from the, you know, the floor <laughs> joists in my parents' basement and try and yeah. make something that doesn't sound like complete crap. And there was no, like zero resources other than maybe reading like an article mix magazine where Butch Vig talked about using a, net, a U87 to mic up something, you know, like, right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's a different, a different era, but it's good and it's good and it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have more accessible but, to us, um, but that doesn't, it's not always great for, uh, for creativity. The other thing I found is some of my favorite records sound horrible. <laughs> like oh, yeah, from, yeah, a, yeah. from a mix standpoint and i love them like yeah, yeah. there was some uh I was listening to like some old pantera record and i was like that is the worst guitar tone <laughs> yeah i have ever heard but i love that record you know? yeah. yeah there's a lot of stuff like that um someone someone gave me a a mix reference before i forget by slipknot and i was blown away listening to it because i remember when that that song came out on the radio and I was like, Oh, this is awesome. This is amazing. And I just don't think recording wise, it's even in the ballpark of some of their better stuff. It sounds like it's thrown together and done really quickly, but yeah, but that just goes to show it you has, that it like, has that vibe though. Most people who aren't working on this stuff, they're more attracted to like the song, right? The emotional impact of yeah, absolutely. the song and the performance than what it's mixed like, I guess. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The song always trumps everything. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Agreed. Well, that's that's a good note to end on. Brad, thank you so much for your time and you're for welcome. the work you're doing. I think um certainly I've my wallet's become a little bit lighter, but I'm uh, yeah. I'm very happy with <laughs> with uh with what I'm hearing so far. So um looking forward cool. to your um your announcement and uh hearing what you guys are doing next. Awesome. Thanks guys. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Right on. Take yeah, care. thank you very much. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. 
Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email, vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email, ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.